That was a very simple piece I composed at the beginning of this year called Castellane Sunshine, based on two notes. It featured the gentlemen in my group, Adam Sorkeld on the guitar, Mark Hodgson on the bass, and Mark Mondesi on the drums. A classical composition is specific, and you practice it and you practice it until the way you play it sounds very natural and sounds almost as if it's improvised. Jazz composition is created in sketch form, meaning you do have a melody, but you invent the way the harmony or the voicings are played. Really, the story of jazz, the story of the music, is about the performers. It's about the pianists. We get an idea of the development of the music and the instrument through the greatest players. We can look at classical music and reach for the books and the written works of great composers like Beethoven, or Mozart, or Bach. But in jazz, we reach for the recordings of Art Tatum, Duke Ellington, of Herbie Hancock, of Miles Davis. Today's program is a personal look at piano in jazz. So, a brief overview of some of the great players in this music. Jelly Roll Morton from New Orleans is the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz and was a pianist, composer, impresario, and entrepreneur. Born in 1890, he traveled around the U.S. absorbing and fusing black musical idioms such as ragtime, blues, and spirituals with Hispanic music and the music of the Caribbean. He enjoyed great success in Chicago in 1926 and 27 with his Red Hot Peppers. I mentioned ragtime. Scott Joplin exemplified this music with pieces like The Entertainer. This kind of music was completely written down. Yubi Blake was a protege of Scott Joplin. He had a great protege of his own, somebody who was starting to create a new kind of music and a new kind of playing on the piano. His name was James P. Johnson. James P. Johnson was the undisputed master of the New York Harlem Stride School. It was called Stride because of the way the left hand would stride the lower register of the keyboard. The major influence on pianists everywhere was this type of playing. Pianist, singer, entertainer and songwriter extraordinaire Fats Waller was one of James P.'s most illustrious students, setting a high technical and musical standard with his solo recordings from as early as 1929. Art Tatum, born a few years after Fats Waller, was a technical and harmonic genius able to do things on the piano no one thought possible and is the musician recognized for taking Fats to the next level. Earl Father Hines, born in 1903, innovated the use of the piano in his melodic and rhythmic approach to playing. More about Earl later. In the late 30s and early 1940s, music started to change with the increasing role and use of the double bass, as in the trio of Nat King Cole. Pianists had to find a new way of playing that did not clash unmusically with the bass. It was Cole, with the likes of the great Count Basie, who pioneered a simpler use of the left hand technically in comparison to stride, 
But the variety of ways in which the left hand could be used, rhythmically, building voices and in accompaniment, was extended. Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie in the 1940s created bebop, sophisticated, complex music which required great virtuosity. Along with the infectious Errol Garner and the complete piano master Oscar Peterson, it was pianistic one-off Thelonious Monk who was to extend, modify and innovate the role of the piano in the music. And I can't forget the essential role of Monk's protege, Bud Powell, a piano wonder, the embodiment of the bebop revolution on this instrument. Others, including the great Hank Jones and Miles Davis sidemen Red Garland and Wynton Kelly, contributed to bringing a sophistication of sound, tone and touch to the piano in jazz. But it was Bill Evans who was to make a huge impact, especially from his contribution to Miles's Kind of Blue album of 1959. Piano techniques overtly borrowed from classical music, in particular the French Impressionist Debussy and Ravel, were to play an important role in the direction Evans was to take. Unmistakably a disciple of Powell and much, much more, Evans ushered in a new era of piano playing that influenced the likes of Chick Corea, Keith Jarrett and Herbie Hancock. Again, I'll be exploring Herbie's music in a little more detail later on. And that was just a very potted history of jazz piano. Of course, there are many, many people who I didn't have time to mention. So, a natural jazz instrument, the piano? Yes, I believe so. I feel it's that. I think if you're in competition with a trumpet player or a trombonist, you might feel that you come against certain limitations. But certainly there are ways of coming around that. Tremolos and shakes on horns we cover by doing, say, something like this. And certainly there are slides, the way people slide up and down notes and bend from one thing to the other. We might do something like this on the piano. So the piano can assimilate a lot of different kinds of sounds. It can be a whole orchestra. One of the great artists whose style was based on assimilation was the great Earl Father Hines. Take your pick. The first modern jazz pianist or the incubator of bebop. Earl Hines was undoubtedly an innovator whose mark on jazz music cut deep and has endured way beyond his death in 1983. Born into a musical family in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1903, Hines started out on trumpet before switching to piano. At 15, he began a career as a professional musician when singer-saxophonist Louis Depp recruited him into his band. Around the same time, Hines moved in with his aunt where the great pianist, composer, and playwright, U.B. Blake, was a regular visitor, as were band leaders Cecil Noble and pianist Charles Lucky Roberts. Their musical influence on Hines was enormous. But it was listening to a blues trumpeter from St. Louis called Joe Smith that affected Hines most profoundly. 
It helped to propel him into a revolutionary style of piano playing that earned him the accolade First Modern Jazz Pianist. Following a recording debut with Depp in 1923, Hines moved to Chicago, where he was soon in great demand, working with the likes of Erskine Tate, Carol Dickinson, Jimmy Noon, and the young Louis Armstrong. Together, he and Armstrong made jazz history with recordings like West End Blues, Tight Like This, Muggles, A Monday Date, and the incredible Heinz Armstrong duet, Weatherbird. At the same time, Hines also made a series of solo recordings that solidified his jazz stardom. It was with his long-standing big band in the late 40s that Hines again took a risk and made history. This time, it was in the bringing together of an extraordinary group of young musicians who would change the face of jazz. A trumpeter called Dizzy Gillespie, a saxophonist named Charlie Parker, trumpeter and vocalist Billy Eckstein, vocalist Sarah Vaughan, and arranger Bud Johnson. Duke Ellington dubbed this band the Incubator of Bebop. After his big band broke up, Earl Hines' work slowed down for several years. That is, until a particularly successful solo concert in New York in 1964 brought him back onto the world stage where he belonged and where he remained until his death. Jean Toussaint on the great Earl Father Hines. So we're going to have a look at a piece by Earl Father Hines, and this is a composition called Backroom at the Villa d'Este. This is the harmonic skeleton for the composition, both when the melody is played and for the improvisation. It's almost like a 16-bar blues. invention from Earl Father Hines is the way he builds his solo. We get this sense of him playing with lots of arpeggiation, and when I say arpeggiation, I mean he's spreading the chord. Something like this. And then he starts to build it up, shows his kind of virtuosity, something like this. (laughs) 
The point of Earl Father Hines as one of the great jazz pianists is that he took the piano from basically just being a rhythm section instrument and really started to focus the way the piano was played melodically. So the right hand became very, very important. He would play phrases very similar to a trumpet. You hear a great artist like Louis Armstrong. Pianists would be saying, oh, I'd, I'd like to play like that. But the most obvious thing to do would be to copy it and try and find a way of doing it. Earl Father Hines was the first person to do that. If I try to imitate in my own way, it might sound something like this. One of the particular things is that he would double the notes, so he'd play them in octaves. Furious phrases by trumpet players doubled in octaves. Quite amazing. And so they started to call Earl Father Hines the piano player with the trumpet sound. So now I'm just going to play the piece backroom at the Villa d'Este. Listen out for the chords that are played in this melody. We refer to them as hits, which means a certain kind of rhythmical emphasis. It's like you're going, one, two, three, four, one, two, one, ba, as a hit. And it also implies that everyone can hit on it as well. The rhythm section can all come together and play those same hits. Just listen to how this melody and the hits fit with the harmonic scheme that I've already spelled out to you.
Earl Father Hines, Backroom at the Villa d'Este. You're listening to BBC Radio 3 with me, Julian Joseph, and this is Discovering Music. Now we're going to go to a musician who is a personality in the music also, the great Duke Ellington. The greatest and most prolific jazz composer and band leader of the 20th century, Duke Ellington, was born in 1899. He was the son of a White House butler, a musical man who wanted his son to be an artist, but was also eager for him to learn the piano. Edward Ellington started on piano at the age of six and continued through high school where he earned the name Duke for his dapper dress sense. Despite excelling as an art student, Ellington the teenager soon chose music for the love of it and the love of the girls it attracted. He moved to New York in 1923 with a band called the Washingtonians. It was here that Ellington was able to truly start to fly as a composer and arranger. And when leader Elmer Snowden left the band, Ellington stepped into his shoes. His big break came in 1927 with the residency at Harlem's Cotton Club, which lasted until 1931. Though tense with racial inequalities, the Cotton Club allowed Ellington a high-profile platform on which to experiment and develop the band. His compositional genius began to appear with pieces like St. Louis Tudelo and Black and Tan Fantasy. As well as many extended compositions, such as the 50-minute piece Black, Brown, and Beige, Duke Ellington wrote many pop songs like Don't Get Around Much Anymore, Sophisticated Lady, and In a Sentimental Mood. Ellington's status as an elder statesman of American music was confirmed in 1956 during an extraordinary performance at Newport Jazz Festival that so electrified the audience it made the TV headline news that night and pushed Ellington onto the cover of Time magazine. From the late 50s up to his death in 1974, he continued to write new music and toured the world with his band. The Sacred Concerts and New Orleans Suite were among the last works in a legacy spanning more than 2,000 compositions. John Toussaint speaking about the great Duke Ellington. Without doubt, the greatest musician harmonically is Duke Ellington. And so I thought we'd look at a piece called Prelude to a Kiss, which is rich in harmony and rich in his sense of chromaticism. A chromatic scale is just playing every single note adjacent to one another on the piano. chromatic means color. The root of it is color. The composition of Dukes that we're going to look at uses this scale. That's the basic melody for the first half of the tune. In the second half of the melody, 
he broadens his use of chromaticism, and it's not all the notes next to each other. Some of the problems that come up when you use chromaticism in a composition is finding a way to make it fit with harmony in a regular sense. And Duke found a way to do that, to balance it with the harmony of the time. Of course, he gave it his own special spice. One of the, the great things about using chromaticism, it just bends the ear, it draws the ear in, it draws the listener in. It's a more spicy sound, it's more interesting, it, it conjures a more sort of eastern sound, if I can say that. Let's just look at that beginning again um, in terms of harmony. It could have been something perhaps like this. As opposed to the way it does sound, which is... Another aspect of Duke Ellington's harmony that is completely unique and pioneering is the way that he voices chords where he would place notes. He had a way of turning harmony on its head, of doing the unexpected. One of the harmonies that Duke Ellington plays that I love, his voicing for a dominant seventh chord, and the dominant seventh is a chord that sounds like this. Of course, there are a thousand ways to voice that chord. One of the ways in which this chord is voiced by Duke Ellington, which I just think has a bigness to it and yet an openness to it, is like this. What's going on there is that he's playing all the tones, but he puts the fourth in there, the perfect fourth. In jazz, we call it a suspended chord if I'm going to play it in the same key. And that note is the suspended note. It's suspended from, from going to this. And it just gives that lovely flavor, that just head-turning thing to it. And he has loads of little devices like that that he does. What I'm going to play for you now is the melody to Prelude to a Kiss and Duke's Harmonies. There are really no boundaries with Duke Ellington. You feel that um, harmonically he's completely free to go anywhere he wishes to go. And it's not just voicing. It is the choices of harmonies that he hears. But I think the important word there is hear, because you can't harmonize something that you don't hear. You can find techniques to derive certain things. But I believe Duke is truly hearing what he's doing. And this separates him from everybody else, I think. He hears beyond the typical realms of harmonists and produces beautiful, uplifting, soulful music.
One of many beautiful pieces written by the great Duke Ellington, and that was Prelude to a Kiss. You're listening to BBC Radio 3 with me, Julian Joseph, and this is Discovering Music. The last artist we, we get a chance to look at today is the great Herbie Hancock. Herbie Hancock was born in Chicago in 1940. Perhaps the first public confirmation of his prodigious talent was a performance of a Mozart concerto at the age of 11 with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. By the time he had left college in the late 50s, where he studied engineering and music, Herbie Hancock's gleaming talent was a regular pleasure for the jazz club goers of Chicago. Right from the beginning of his career, Herbie's understanding of sound, textures, and harmonic interaction gave him a distinctive personal touch. So amazed was Donald Byrd when he toured the city that he snapped Hancock up and took him off to New York to be part of his band. There, at his first recording session with Byrd, Hancock was spotted by Blue Note Records, who gave him his first shot at being a band leader. The seminal Taken Off album, including instant hit Watermelon Man, was the result. Herbie Hancock was just 22. Herbie's piano style was melding blues inflections, the rhythmic swing of bebop, and a thorough understanding of advanced modern classical harmony. Little wonder that in 1963 he got the call to join another musician, famous for his constant searching and innovation, Miles Davis. With Miles, 
Herbie was given the freedom to explore and reach. And along with bassist Ron Carter and drummer Tony Williams, revolutionized jazz rhythm section playing. He brought important compositions to the band, like Riot and The Sorcerer, while at the same time under his own name recording tracks like Maiden Voyage, Dolphin Dance, and Cantaloupe Island for Blue Note. Under the guidance of Miles, the driving force behind the creation of Jazz Fusion, Herbie added the electric piano and other electronic keyboards to his arsenal. In doing so, he shaped his own blend of highly intelligent but utterly exciting funk and pop-infused jazz. Throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, Herbie created a vast body of live and studio recordings and received possibly every award given for music. To this day, Hancock continues to be high in demand, recording and touring acoustic and electric projects. Jean Toussaint on Herbie Hancock. I thought we'd look at a piece called Maiden Voyage. This piece is just based on four chords. You can take it in many, many different directions, but it's based on a rhythm and four chords, and it's just very, very simple. It's, the, the rhythm is this. So that's the rhythm. And the four chords are this. And um, he, he manages to create this mood, this calmness, and the vehicle for great melodicism. The tune is very simple. It's like this. And that repeats. And then changes key. And then the statement of the first melody comes back again. It's a very simple melody, very simple chords, and a very unusual yet simple rhythm. I think this is the essence of what he is about. When you go deeply into his music and into his playing, it's very sophisticated, it's very complex, it's very virtuosic. But when he plays, it sounds simple. It has a simple sound to it, it sounds effortless, and it is always musical. Well, one of the things to listen out to on the composition Maiden Voyage with Herbie Hancock is the way that he will make the melodic ideas he has change the harmony at will to put them in a different context. So he may hold down the first chord and start by playing a note completely outside of the realm of what that chord implies.
Another thing I really love about Herbie Hancock is the way he uses the piano. I mean, something like this that uh, you might hear Herbie Hancock use in terms of a pedal technique. What I was doing there was I was depressing the chord and coming off as quickly as I could with my hands and just catching the end of the sound with the sustain pedal. And it, it creates this kind of jerky sound, this... I mean, it's no secret in jazz, the influence the impressionists like Debussy and Ravel have Something that you might get that's quite Debussy-esque is the use of the whole tone scale and the whole tone sound. And not only that, but the way it, that was treated, almost like creating a water effect. It would sound maybe something like this with Herbie. So one of the great aspects about Herbie Hancock is that um, he has this wonderful sense of the blues in his playing, a wonderful earthiness. All of this is juxtaposed with the sophistication that he has, but um, in a piece like this, with all the different kinds of effects that we can see that are possible, he may throw in something very, very bluesy. I'm going to play the whole piece now. Just try and get into the mood of it. See if you can see into the world of Herbie Hancock a little bit here. Maiden Voyage.
Herbie Hancock's maiden voyage. And so we've come to the conclusion, really, of our look at the role of piano in jazz. We've had a very brief look at three particularly gifted artists, uh, Father Hines, who took the trumpet style and brought that into the piano and changed the way pianists played melodically. We looked at the harmony of Duke Ellington, the invention, the musical choices that he would make and the soulful choices that he would make. We looked at Herbie Hancock, many different devices, many things drawn from classical music and built on the roots of jazz. All of these people have made a, a huge impact on me and my own music and what I try to get to when I'm writing a piece of music. So the piece you're going to hear is called A Ballad of Love and it's based on, on a rhythm that is set up in this way. Two, a three, four, five. So basically that's the first section and the way that the piece is built is built by creating melodies over that, the melody using the arpeggio that we found earlier in Earl Hines' music in the way that he would solo, imitating these early trumpet stylings. And then where the music moves to after that is a very rich chordal type section in the center that, that just takes us on a little harmonic journey, the kind of harmonies that perhaps we would see in Duke Ellington's music. We'll be able to experiment in different kinds of ways with the sound that we're making on our instruments and we'll just try and impart some of these classical techniques that uh, Herbie Hancock plays in terms of rolling, creating this watery effect or playing slightly outside of the harmony and playing slightly outside of the box as well. So um, we'll save that for you in the piece and we hope you enjoy it. This is called A Ballad of Love. 